probably no better words to uh, start a sermon than those words from Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, words that are imprinted in our hearts and written on our souls that remind us that the values of the Lord Jesus run along the lines of softness and humility and meekness rather than power and strength and triumphalism. What an incredible way to remember those, those words. One of the things that I like about this Sunday in our services will be that that hymn, that song will be a part of every service. Now I don't know, Ben and Paige, if they'll be able to do what you guys did over in the auditorium or outdoors, but thank you for your ministry and your service to us. It's hard to compose myself after having heard you, heard you sing. A Lutheran pastor's always got an issue on July 4th and Memorial Day and those ones. It's, it's always kind of a conundrum about how it works. If I come hard on the nation or I ignore the nation, then either way people are critical. And when you're 57, you don't really care about how critical people are, but you're much more in tune to wanting to do the right thing. And so if I come up this morning and don't and don't address, a pen, don't address Independence Day because I want to keep politics out of the pulpit, then for many I haven't done the job and completed the task. And then I'll tell myself, well, we're distinct from the world. We're citizens of heaven. It doesn't really, come on, relax. There's something bigger and grander than just the United States of America. And no matter what I say, it's controversial. Some people will see what I say and how I say it as offensive to them or, or, or aligning with them. Some people will grab me at the steps and say, eh, that was really good, Pastor, you let them have it. And other people will say, man, that's so grossly offensive, Pastor, I think you need to leave St. John's. But I, like all of you, have a political bias. And so does our congregation, like it or not. I'd be lying to you if I told you that I don't have certain writers and certain blogs that I follow and podcasts that I listen to that align with my political points of view. And so do you. And so I could just choose to preach on another text and do my thing, or I can choose to go hard at Independence Day because the Scripture clearly speaks of a citizen's role in society. We've read that from, from the book of Romans. And many more want to think it through from a biblical perspective rather than from a political perspective. And as Christian citizens, we're called to that, to think first of our value as Christians, and then on down the road, what we believe politically I'm not sure if you've heard my subtle pieces throughout the, 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 the pandemic where I've been able to, to say our, our faith informs our politics. Our politics should not necessarily inform our faith. First Jesus. First faith in Jesus Christ. And then as Christian citizens, we evaluate our politics and our alignment thereof. And the context of the day and the context of the nation, where we're at and how volatile politics are right now, I think it's important that I speak to that today coming from the clear and concise Word of God.
every time I come at this sermon, and I had this sermon written earlier this week, I didn't just clean it up on Friday and hope for the best. I, I think of my friend, Dr. Mazum Gill. Dr. Gill is a Pakistani immigrant. His father was pushed out of Pakistan as a Christian, and they landed here in the United States. Dr. Gill comes as a Christian immigrant, and he said, Pastor, friend, it's our value system that the rest of the world struggles with. It's not the money or the power or the military. It's our value system. It's our value system that as a child led me and many of us to stand at the beginning of a classroom of a, of a day of school and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. What we value drives our behaviors. And so we better make sure that we have our values straight as Christians living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. The word of the Lord that engages us today comes from Second Chronicles. And I love this piece, but I like it for a different reason than you may think. And I'm going to share that with you in the moments ahead. The Lord God comes to Solomon after Solomon's done his great building projects and he said, here's the deal. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now what that sounds a lot like is if we do our, we do our part If we pray right, if we humble ourselves, if we put our lives together, and if we get everything aligned politically and and just do the things that God has called us to do perfectly, then God will bless our land. And the blessing of God upon our land is contingent on our ability to obey. If we just do our part. And so there's entire cottage industry in America to get people to do their part. Not because the Lord says so, but because in some kind of obtuse way, we will manipulate God into caring for our nation. If we just do our part, then God is obligated to do His own part. And as Lutheran Christians, you kind of nod your, shake your head and go, yeah, that just doesn't sit well in my soul. We're not like that. We're not big on if we do, then God will. It just doesn't seem to ever work that way. And if you look into the history of Israel and you think about that, it didn't really work out so well for them. All of the stuff that the Lord God had prophesied to Solomon in the bottom part of of that conversation was very, very painful. And all of it came to be true. The people were uprooted from their land. The temple was rejected and had to be rebuilt. They were an object of ridicule for the nations. And the people over the course of generations turned away from the Lord. God's working in history has never been contingent on the obedience of mankind. But God's working in history has always been focused on the love and the mercy and the sovereignty of God to act. The reality is here. 
as God speaks not to Solomon, but as He speaks through Jeremiah, these words, and I know that the slide is small for you here, but I think the people on their computers and their TVs this morning can see it pretty well, so that's kind of where we're at. From Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. After Israel had messed everything up, the Lord came back through the word and promise of His heart of love and grace to His people, and He said, I'm going to clean this all up. And the focus of the new covenant is not going to be a focus of, if you obey, then I will. The focus of the new covenant is going to be, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And in that is grace and mercy, rooted in the forgiveness of sins and the closeness of God living in and among His people. Whether they're in Babylon or Israel, whether Judah or Israel, whether in the United States of America or in any country since then. The covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people, is the foundational peace upon which God would work history. So the reality is that God uses nations. He uses Syria, He uses Babylon, He uses the United States of America. He uses people in the best sense, people of leadership. People with rifles, people with skills to negotiate, people who can fly helicopters. He uses people in real time and real space to do His will. He uses citizens like us, simple people who vote and want to have quiet and and peaceful lives, who want to prosper and have lives that are good. He uses people like us to make a nation great. And he works to accomplish his purpose, not necessarily Tim Klinkenberg's political purpose, but to achieve his purpose. And here's the purpose of God from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Remember a gentleman who was teaching his disciples and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The will of God is that all people would know the truth of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
and he used the reprobates from Israel. He used good kings and bad kings, good prophets and bad prophets. He used good times and bad times, economic prosperity and times of misery and perceived abandonment. And when the time had fully come, Paul writes in Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law, to send Jesus into the world. God's will and plan would not be thwarted by any nation. Rather, he used nations and politics and people and citizens and leaders and armies to bring forth his Savior who would seal his covenant from Jeremiah in his blood on the cross and bring closeness to God for you and me. I hope you have some money with you this morning because our values are printed on our money. People hold pretty tightly to their money. This morning we're going to pass the offering plate. That'll be kind of interesting. We'll see how that goes. First time we're going to do it. We do not have disinfectant wipes for everyone to have. If you get a little creeped out on the offering this morning, just you can give in the back. It's all good, but nobody throw up or go nervous. We'll all be okay. Our values are on our money. How about that? Did you ever think about that? You have a quarter, a dollar. You want to bring that out and look at it, and as soon as you do, we'll pass the plate. But our value system is pretty straightforward. Anyone who knows anything about America knows that one of our key core values, maybe our number one, is liberty. Liberty. Another one is the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, out of the plurality, unity, out of the many, one. And then that marvelous peace that Christians love, in God we trust. All printed right there for you on a quarter. Liberty. We gather in freedom today. The government did not send me my message. I'm responsible for this. They didn't send a, a person to come and check and send me an email and say, Klinkenberg, you've been a little coercive among your people. You're, you're not quite in a line with the government says you need to do. You better toe the line or we're going to take you away to a concentration camp. No, no, we have liberty in our country. We speak of that in terms of freedom. We say let freedom ring. It's that sense of freedom that, that Americans went into Germany and France and Belgium in World War I. And young people gave their lives for freedom. Again in 1941. It was the American army, Americans who loved freedom, who went at the forces of totalitarianism, of Nazism, as we went also into Korea and Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. Sacrifice for freedom, because freedom is a core value of our nation and one for which, which many have died. And this morning we get to remember those who have died for that freedom and give thanks to God for them, even going back to the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, where many, many people gave their lives so that slaves would be free in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And so we celebrate today political freedom, religious freedom, re freedom from religious coercion, that the government would tell you what to believe. We have liberty and freedom of assembly that we can gather together without the fear of being arrested and taken away. We're able to have freedom of speech. 
economic freedom to pursue a lifestyle that you want and that you like and that befits you. If you want to be a farmer, then by all means go farm. If you want to be a business person, by all means go lead a business. It's America. You have the choice to do what you want to do and the freedom to pursue happiness for you and freedom of the press. Fascinating how that is. You can read what you want to read and you can write what you want to write. Liberty. Liberty. And we also have freedom from the state. Right? The state cannot tell us what to believe or what to do necessarily in every aspect of our lives or what to think. And so that gift of liberty and that value of liberty guides the behaviors of the citizens of the country. Second value is in God we trust. Benjamin Franklin said, if men are so wicked as we now see them with religion, what would they be without it? (laughs) John Adams said the following two things. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And again, religion was the only thing that could tame our savage natures. As Christian citizens, we trust in God. We have a conscience towards our country. We have a conscience towards the behaviors that make a nation better, of loving and caring for people. We understand that the authority set up, unless it is godless, is the authority that is set up by God Himself, which makes Christians and people of a Christian nation better citizens, more informed, leaning in in a deeper, stronger manner to the country that God has given to them. And finally, that marvelous Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, (laughs) out of the many, one. And there for you who critique my slides is my one mistake I left for you this morning. Out of the many, one. What does an American look like? If you were to draw a picture of an American, what would that American look like? If we were to talk about a citizen of China or a citizen of Norway or a citizen of Germany or a citizen of Mexico, you could draw and fill in with a little bit more accuracy. But if I tell you to draw a picture of an American, it becomes a a whole different thing. You, You couldn't really do that because we come from everywhere. I recently did an Ancestry.com thing and figured out that I'm 17% Swedish. What in the world? If you draw a picture of an American, what does an American look like? I came across this marvelous quote from a, a book written by one of my favorite authors. Again, you'll find my political proclivity here, uh, Dennis Prager, as I went to go hear him at the Reagan Library and read this piece out of his book last week. Unlike other national identities, there is no racial or ethnic component to being American. We know what Norwegians, Japanese, Chinese, Ethiopians, and others are supposed to look like because there is an actual racial or ethnic component to being a member of these groups. But we have no idea what an American looks like because an American can look like Norwegian, Japanese, Chinese, African, Arab, Latin, or like any combination of them. 
It is truth that there was always a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant look to the majority. But when the non-wasps began immigrating to America, they became as American as any wasp. That is why God bless America, probably the American peoples and its unofficial national anthem could be written by a Russian Jewish emigrant named Israel Isidore Balin, also known as Irving Berlin. He felt as American as someone whose ancestors came to America on the Mayflower. A Russian Jewish immigrant is an American aligned with those who came on the Mayflower. Out of the plurality, one. Out of the many, one. Regardless of your country of origin, we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I despise the politics that chop Americans into sections and then play those sections against one another. I despise that. I did a little research on my cousin, my oldest cousin, Richard, who was killed in the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. He looks just like a Klinkenberg, tall forehead, receding hairline. I mean, just... I struggle with the idea that we're not all one in our nation. But as Christian citizens, I'm reminded and want to remind you together this morning that we are all in this, this nation together. Holding on to our faith in Jesus Christ. The first value that Christians hold on to is faith in Jesus Christ. And then holding on to our value system. Articulated in the hymn that we sang right before the message. Blessed are they, holy are they. And holding on to our values of a nation because our values drive our behavior. And finally giving thanks today for our nation. I believe that we live in the best nation in the history of the world. There is no other nation which has benefited so many other people, nations, delivered so much food, so much money, so much protection over the course of time. One leader when asked what America wanted after a time of war said, just a place to bury our debt. We're in this together. And there's something marvelous about being a Christian citizen that we can give thanks for our nation and turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who works by His grace and His presence in the people and the systems of the world to bring about His purpose that people would be redeemed in the blood of His Son. In the name of Jesus, amen.